This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The leader of the Homeland Security Department's acquisition shop is retiring. Soraya Correa will leave her job as the agency's chief procurement officer July 31st. Federal News Network reports Correa has been CPO at the agency since 2015. Congress is reviewing a $4.3 billion reprogramming request from the Defense Department tonight. The request includes $668 million for the Defense Health Program to cover pandemic response and $420 million for personnel and operations costs to deploy National Guard troops to the southern border. Politico reports some of the money would come from Navy shipbuilding accounts the service won't use this year. The hearing for the Biden administration's Navy secretary nominees coming next Tuesday. Carlos del Toro will testify to the Senate Armed Services Committee at a hearing with other DOD nominees. USNI News reports other nominees include Deputy Comptroller nominee Kathleen Miller, Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness nominee Gil Cisneros, and Army Assistant Secretary for Civil Works nominee Michael Connor. Agencies will submit new data and analysis to the Office of Management and Budget to comply with guidance from OMB. The guidance is part of agency implementation of the Evidence Act. Nick Hart is president of the Data Foundation. Nick, thanks very much for coming on. OMB viewers will probably scold me because they don't like the idea that this is compliance. In this uh, guidance, Shalanda Young writes, agencies should not simply produce the required documents and then turn their attention elsewhere. What would you like to see agencies do to really dig into the spirit of the Evidence Act and not just the letter of it? Well, Francis, this is a really important moment for implementing the Evidence Act and taking this new charge of government seriously. So this is the first guidance on the Evidence Act from the Biden administration, and they've made this really strong commitment to evidence-based policymaking. <clears throat> this memo is not just about saying that, it's about providing a roadmap of how to do it. So uh, this says we're going to move beyond performance measurement and tracking basic metrics to actually studying how programs work and what impacts they achieve and in what places, where and why. So the expectations from the administration are incredibly clear here. And they're saying evaluation matters. It's a basic function of government, just like managing your budget. So this is really important for implementing the Evidence Act. It's uh, a critical role of the new evaluation officers to take these strategies uh, to, to heart. And it's the reason the American Evaluation Association also just came out and said, this is one of the most critical moments for evaluation that we've seen in government. Two really key things in the guidance. One, OMB is saying this doesn't just apply to some agencies. This is the expectation of the whole of government. And that's a really important statement. And then secondly, I, and to OMB's credit, they're giving us increased coherence about how we can implement all of these different aspects of improving government in one big strategy. There are two vehicles here, it seems to me, that OMB expects agencies to put together. One is the learning agenda and the other is an annual evaluation plan. Am I reading the framework of this correctly, Nick? 
That's exactly right. They're both requirements of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Acts. So the learning agenda is like a strategic plan specifically for research and evaluation. And it was also a critical aspect of the Evidence Act because it connects the research community, those producing evidence, to the decision-making needs of uh, policymakers. So if we can be honest about the big questions that we have in our society, the things that we don't know answers to today, document those. We can also identify the evidence we have and the evidence that we need to ensure that we're collecting the right kinds of data and then actually studying the right things to improve the services and policies for the American people. I want to go back to that idea of the spirit versus the letter of the act. What would you like to see agencies do with those learning agendas and those annual evaluation plans so that they actually get to more evidence-based policymaking rather than just the compliance aspect of this that people are concerned agencies will take this as? Yeah, I mean, if, if we've only achieved a check-the-box exercise here and folks are producing these, publishing them, but then not using the learning agendas or the evaluation plans, we haven't changed the culture of government. And that's really what the Evidence Act was about, trying to change this culture over time. That's what the signaling and the, the memo from OMB is, is also suggesting. Senior leaders have to take a really key role in this and not just identifying the core issues that they want to build evidence on, but actually using that evidence in practice. And that's one of the great aspects of the learning agenda process. Um, to not make this a compliance exercise, it also requires us to be honest and transparent. Uh, maybe even engaging the American people and stakeholder communities in ways that we haven't historically done. So there's some interesting references in the memo, for example, about inclusive stakeholder engagement processes that may not mean just publishing something in the Federal Register and hoping that you get good responses, but actively reaching out in a participatory way so that beneficiaries of programs, researchers, uh, those in the evidence building community can actually engage on these topics in a really coherent way. And one piece that I thought was really intriguing, OMB said that one of the stakeholders is Congress, which is not a, not a statement that we tend to hear from the executive branch in this way. What are the potential obstacles or potential mistakes that agencies could make as they move forward on these that you would like to see them avoid, Nick? Well, there's always a risk that we get so bogged down in the process that we lose sight of the fact that the process is a means to an end. And this was also actually acknowledged in the memo that the ends is actually improving outcomes, uh, making our programs operate better. The processes that are outlined here are just a way to get there. So every agency is going to have a slightly different process a uh, slightly different configuration of what they put in their learning agendas and their evaluation plans and how they organize the activities. And in many respects, every agency has to figure some of that out for themselves. They know their policies, they know their programs, they know their communities the best. But at the end of the day, the common strategy for having a learning agenda and having an evaluation plan and then being responsive to your respective communities is, is the goal that we're, we're really working towards. We have about 30 seconds left, Nick. Um, in a few weeks, uh, your former colleague on the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, Robert Shea, will be on to talk about similar issues. Do I have to give him credit for any of these ideas? Because when I do that, he's just incorrigible. Well, the, all of this work started with the U.S. Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, and Robert was a member. So uh, the fact that we have evaluation officers or an Evidence Act is really a credit to that commission. Nick, thanks very much for coming on. It's always great to have you here. Thanks, Francis. Coming next, missing links in the Pentagon's supply chain. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the critical supply pieces the Pentagon doesn't have. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Air Force says its F-35 sustainment costs will grow to 14% more than it can afford, even if it gets all of the spare parts for the aircraft for free. The military spare parts supply chain suffering a, quote, crisis in readiness. According to Stephen Rodriguez, he's founder and managing partner at One Defense, senior advisor at the Atlantic Council. He's writing about the state of the Pentagon supply chain with co-author Andrew Gonzalez in Defense News. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece, a key driver for the scarcity of components and parts is that many are sole sourced. And it appears from what you write, it's understandable that, that, that there's that's good news it's also bad news how so well thank you for having me on the show i've uh, been a long time admirer and uh i've had the fortune of having many friends on your show too uh so it's great to be here i think the primary issue which we tried to quickly highlight in the uh, defense news article is the differentiation between what's called sole source or a single supplier uh that delivers the the, the goods quite literally as well as uh, what we call single source, which is having many suppliers delivering a single uh, good. And this uh, creates uh, brittleness in the supply chain. Uh, it also uh, tends to constrain the government into what they uh, uh, refer to as the dreaded vendor lock. So this is a, a, a really an issue of competition, whether it's with China, with Russia, or pick your adversary or uh, existential boogeyman. And uh, our simple argument is, look, we can talk about strategy, we can talk about uh, numbers of ship or plane buys, but you don't get to compete with anyone if you don't have spare parts. You lay this out rather starkly, too. Uh, you write uh, about the lack of large single-pore aluminum and magnesium sand castings for aircraft, only two domestic suppliers of solid rocket motors, and you pose the question, which hopefully only is existential uh, in the future, what happens if these tools stop arriving? How's the Air Force supposed to replace aircraft lost in combat quickly? You refer people to the 2019 Industrial Capabilities Report as a place to go to learn why this is important. What's in there that you think people should be aware of? I think simply highlighting metrics, you know, uh, on on shows like this and even on a 900-word uh, article in Defense News, it's easy to kind of gloss over a lot of the important metrics. I think the metrics are important because they validate to a sophisticated audience that this, is, yes, is indeed a problem. And as you noted, this report was from 2019. So this is also a recent problem. Uh, I think this problem began, uh, it's difficult to figure out where uh, challenges like this start. Uh, one of the places I think to look first is the uh, infamous uh, Les Aspen 1993 dinner uh, with the major defense contractors. At the time, the the major defense contractors were, were Legion, and they had this dinner where, uh, to paraphrase, uh, the Secretary of Defense said, I need you guys to start buying each other and shrinking and consolidating. You know, the Cold War is over. Uh, we have the end of history. We're not going to need you. We're not. We're not. We're not going to need so many of you. So it would be in your best interest to uh, consider consolidation. Um, and and they you know followed his uh, his request to a T. And now we have uh, a massive consolidation in the in the industry. Uh, further highlighted by the news, I think earlier this week with Huntington Ingalls uh, buying a Lion, a, a I believe a Veritas portfolio company. Um, so I think you continue to see that consolidation move from the prime contractors at the top of the pyramid down to the, the major uh, service 
uh, providers in the middle tier uh, as well. You point to some solutions in this piece. One is that current contractor system integrators don't have strong enough requirements for surge capability in either the contract duration of the product lifecycle. What fixes that? I think uh, one is uh, requirements writing. Uh, giving flexibility for surge capacity um, in terms of product orders. I think the second one is diversifying a supply chain base, which really, frankly, is an OSD policy, specifically an OSD industrial policy uh, challenge. Uh, industrial policy actually used to be a much bigger office than it was. Uh, I believe it used to be a, uh, I think what they refer to as the, the old uh, DUSD uh, deputy undersecretary uh, position before it was relegated to a, uh, with respect to a, a DASD uh, position. Uh, I think this is a major industrial policy issue around uh, solving what is, I think, a, a primary issue I would highlight is the procurement lag for critical parts, for critical tools, things that are not easily replaceable. Uh, and right now, as we highlight in the article, this procurement lag is not one to three days you know, like you, you might expect from an Amazon uh, purchase uh, or one to three months, it's one to three years. And again, the challenge the, the, in the questions we asked is, you know, what what satellites are we supposed to refloat into low Earth orbit if we, you know, don't have the rockets to get them up there? You know, how do you replace a broken windshield on a F-22 or F-35 that takes two full weeks to, to arrive when you're in high, high intensity combat operations? You know, these are real practical and, if I'm being honest, annoying questions that someone has to answer. Uh, does some of this potentially um, result in being overcome by events? All three of all of the services, uh, all three of the branches have uh, 3D printing capabilities on board uh, in, in, included in their inventories. I know you can't necessarily print a uh, a windshield for an aircraft, but there's a lot of things that you can make on site. And I wonder if part of the policy issue becomes the department's willingness and ability to buy IP instead of buying stuff. I think it's a great point. Uh, I wrote about this in War on the Rocks in 2014. I think the article was called Disrupted Defense, where I highlighted the intersection of robotics and 3D printing um, to build military capability, at least at the, at the tactical level, um, which is really, in many cases, what we're talking about when we look at spare parts. There's some great companies out there uh, that are emerging. They're all venture-backed companies like uh, Icon, uh, Icon 3D, I believe, based out of Austin. Um, they're 3D printing homes at scale, but they're also, uh, you know, I, I believe in exploratory discussions um, based on what you read publicly with the Marine Corps about building fighting positions and other large scale 3D printing projects. You also have uh, companies like Hadrian um, focused more on uh, space technology development at the 3D level. Um, I think this is a great uh, opportunity to revitalize the discussion around what you and I have been calling for some time, defense innovation. Stephen Rodriguez, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. You can find a link to Stephen's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, spending decisions now that could affect security for decades to come. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the spending focus that's shifting for U.S. allies. If you miss a show, we archive every episode of Government Matters on our website. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Defense Department leaders say eventually the U.S. military will open its joint all-domain command and control system to share information with its allies and partners. Those allies and partners, though, could be headed in very different directions when they make decisions about the fleets that will interact with the U.S. military. Brian Burton's an international business development specialist in the Defense Space and Security Division at Boeing. He's former advisor to two members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he's writing about the future of fighter aircraft programs in War on the Rocks. His views are his own and not those of his employer. Brian, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What difference does it make to us what equipment our allies and partners buy? Well, it's a great question, Francis, and I'm really happy to be on with you. I, I think it's important to recognize that uh, our allies are making some very important decisions over the next few years about major investments in their future fighter aircraft fleets uh, and the way that they will design those, the requirements that they will uh, put on them, and, and ultimately, you know, will shape the military capabilities that they have uh, for decades to come. And uh, from the U.S. perspective, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, our alliances, the importance of being able to interoperate with allied forces. And so from that perspective, it's, it's very critical that uh, as our allies develop future fighter aircraft, as well as other future systems that um, uh, the U.S. government takes a proactive role in working with our allies to ensure that uh, we can interoperate together and that the capabilities that our allies are investing in are, are relevant for future combat situations. What is the right balance between asking, suggesting, pressuring those allies to buy the same stuff we have and working with them on a more collaborative basis to say, we'd like to know what you're getting so that we can help you build the systems to communicate with us and us with you. So I think the collaboration is critical and, and probably the aspect that we uh, don't do enough of, especially when you talk about high-end systems like future fighter aircraft. And I think um, really we would benefit a lot if uh, the U.S. government would lean forward uh, much more in terms of uh, sharing information with our allies about uh, future threat data, sharing the direction that we're going, as you mentioned, on uh, uh, systems and uh, concepts like JADC2 um, that are going to be so important for interoperability in the future. Uh, look, I mean, the, the allies that I'm talking about in, in the article are really some of our most capable and advanced allies, Japan, the UK, France, Germany. Uh, they have robust and sophisticated industrial bases, and they, uh, you know, very understandably want their industries to play a lead role in the development of these uh, systems. So it, it doesn't make sense for the U.S. to to go in and say, well, you have to have the same aircraft we have in, in this situation. But it does make sense for us to work with them to ensure that we have a common understanding of requirements. Uh, general common understanding of what types of technologies will be required and that we can, you know, potentially co-invest and uh, co-develop uh, certain aspects of these future fighters so that we, uh, we have kind of similar interoperable capabilities that, uh, that still allow our allies to tailor uh, the platforms that they use for the, their specific 
uh, situations. The good news, uh, it sounds to me, too, is that those allies that you just listed are some of our closest allies with some of our strongest relationships who also, because of geopolitical issues, are some of the most highly motivated to want to cooperate and collaborate with us, Brian. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think, you know, we should really recognize that uh, countries like the UK, Japan, uh, you know, they face many of the same uh, uh, operational challenges in terms of uh, increasingly capable adversaries that the, that we were concerned about. And so there's really, I think, a great opportunity here as, as all of these uh, allies, as well as the U.S., start to develop future uh, combat aircraft to um, come together around at least some general understandings of, of requirements and um, uh, the path forward on uh, the way that we uh, design and develop uh, these aircraft in the future. You write, uh, to wrap this piece up, Brian, the continuing the current approach to allied future fighter programs will hinder the development of U.S. allies' defense capabilities at a time when the United States needs them to be stronger than ever. Where are we going wrong and what fixes that in the coming months and years, Brian? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. And the way that I would sort of characterize it is we still have a uh, an export control process that is built around the idea that that we need to kind of maintain a close hold on our most sophisticated technologies. And my argument is that uh, in a sort of great power competition environment, any uh, you know technological advantage that we gain is going to be fleeting when you're talking about uh, the sophistication of some of our adversaries. So the way that we can make up for that, is by doing more to leverage the uh, the industry and ingenuity of these very sophisticated allies that we have, uh, and the way that we need to do that is by uh, you know coming to the table with you know an extended hand in the form of some concrete proposals for cooperation, rather than kind of crossed arms uh, and and you know maintaining kind of business as usual. Uh, in terms of uh, a, a tightly held uh, export control process. Brian, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Francis. You can find a link to Brian's piece, and you can find every episode of our show at govmatters.tv. Don't forget, you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.